Part One, Chapter Two of Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Two. Journeys end in lovers' meeting. The phrase conjures a picture: the courtyard of some inn, glowing ripe in the tints of the setting sun, open doors, an ancient coach disgorging its passengers. This or perhaps some key alive with sound of movement, cries of command in varying tongues, crowded gangways, rigging massed against the sky, all the paraphernalia of romance and travel. But the real journey, the journey of adventure itself, is frequently another matter, often grey, often loverless, often demanding from the secret soul of the adventurer spirit and inspiration, lest the blood turns cold in sick dismay and the brain cloud under its weight of nostalgia. Paris, in the dawn of a wet day, is a sorry sight. The Gare du Nord, in the hours of early morning, is a place of infinite gloom. As the North Express thundered into its recesses, waking strange and hollow echoes, the long sweep of the platform brought a shudder to more than one tired mind. A string of sleepy porters, grey silhouettes against the grey background, was the only sign of life. Colours there were none, lovers there were none, Parisian joy of living there was not one vestige. Paris. The murmur crept through the train, stirring the weariest to mechanical action. Paris. Heads were thrust through the windows, wraps and handbags passed out to the shadowy, mysterious porters, who received them in a silence born of the godless hour and the penetrating, chilling dampness of the atmosphere. In the carriage, fifth or sixth from the engine, the three fellow-travellers greeted the arrival in the orthodox way. The tall American stretched his long limbs and groaned wearily as he got his belongings together, while the dapper young Englishman thrust his head out of the window and withdrew it as rapidly. "'Beastly morning,' he announced. "'Paris on a wet day is like a woman with draggled skirts.' "'Get rid of our belongings first, Billy. Make epigrams after.' The man called Blake pushed him quietly aside, and, stepping to the window, dropped a leather bag into the hands of a porter. Of the three, his manner was the most indifferent, his temper the most unraffled, and of the three he alone remembered the fourth occupant of the carriage, for, being relieved of his bag, he turned with his hand still upon the window, and his eyes sought the youthful figure, drawn with lonely isolation into its corner. "'Do you want a porter?' he asked. The question was unexpected. The boy started and sat straighter in his seat. For one moment he seemed to sway between two impasses. Then, with a new determination, he looked straight at his questioner with his clear eyes. "'No,' he said, speaking slowly and with a grave deliberation. "'I do not need a porter. I have no luggage but this.' He rose as if to prove the truth of his declaration, and lifted his valise from the rack. It was a simple movement— simple as the question and answer that had preceded it. But it held interest for Blake. He could not have analysed the impression, but something in the boy's air touched him. Something in the young figure so plainly clad, so aloof, stood out with sharp appeal in the greyness and unreality of the dawn. A feeling that was neither curiosity nor pity, and yet savoured of both, urged him to further speech. As his two companions, anxious to be free of the train, passed out into the corridor, he glanced once more at the slight figure, at the high Russian boots, the long overcoat, the fur cap drawn down over the dark hair. "'Look here, 
"'You aren't alone in Paris?' he asked in the easy, impersonal way that spoke his nationality. "'You have people, friends, to meet you?' For an instant the look that had possessed the boy's face during the journey, the look of suspicion akin to fear, leaped up, but at the moment it was conquered. The well-poised head was thrown back, and again the eyes met Blake's in a deliberate gaze. "'Why do you ask, monsieur?' The words were clipped, the tone proud and a little cold. Another man might have hesitated to reply truthfully, but Blake was an Irishman and used to self-expression. "'I ask,' he said simply, "'because you are so young.' A new expression, a new daring, swept the boy's mobile face. A spirit of raillery gleamed in his eyes, and he smiled for the first time. "'How old, monsieur?' The question, the smile, touched Blake anew. He laughed involuntarily with a sudden sense of friendliness. Sixteen? Seventeen? The boy, still smiling, shook his head. "'Guess again, monsieur?' Blake's interest flashed out. Here, in the grey station, in the damp hour of dawn, he had touched something magnetic, some force that drew and held him. A quality, intangible and indescribable, seemed to emanate from this unknown boy, some strange radiance of vitality that flooded his surroundings as with sunshine. Eighteen, then,' he laughed once more with a curious sense of pleasure. But from the corridor outside a slow voice was borne back on the damp, close air, forbidding further parley. "'Blake! I say, Blake, for God's sake, get a move on!' The spell was broken. The moment of companionship passed. Blake drifted toward the carriage door, the boy following. Outside in the corridor they were sucked into the stream of departing passengers. That odd medley of men and women, unadorned, jaded, careless, that a night train disgorges. Slowly, step by step, the procession made its way, each unit that composed it glancing involuntarily into the empty carriages that he passed, the carriages that, in their dimmed light, their airlessness, their debris of papers, seemed to be a reflection of his own exhausted condition. Then a gust of chilly air told of the outer world, and one by one the travellers slid through the narrow doorway, each instinctively pausing to brace himself against the biting cold before stepping down upon the platform. At last it was Blake's turn. He, too, paused. Then he, too, took the final plunge, shivered, glanced at where McCutcheon and the Englishman were talking to their porters, then turned to watch the Russian boy swing himself lithely down from the high step of the train. All about him was the consciousness of the awakening crowd, conveyed by the jostling of elbows, the deepening hum of voices. "'Look here,' he said again, in response to his original impulse. "'You have somebody to meet you?' The boy glanced up, a secret emotion burning in his eyes. "'No, monsieur.' "'You are quite alone?' "'Yes, monsieur.' "'And why are you here? To play or to work?' The question was unwarrantable, but an Irishman can dispense with warranty in a manner unknown to other men. It had ever been Blake's way to ask what he desired to know. This time no offence showed itself in the boy's face. "'In part to work, in part to play, monsieur,' he answered gravely. "'In part to learn life.' The reply was strange to Blake's ears, strange in its grave sincerity, "'stranger still in its quiet fearlessness. "'But you're such a child!' he cried impulsively. "'You—' "'Imperceptibly the slight figure stiffened, 
the proud look flashed again into the eyes. "'Many thanks, monsieur, but I am older than you think, and very independent. I have the honour, monsieur, to wish you good-bye.' The tone was absolutely courteous, but it was final. He bowed with easy foreign grace, raised his fur cap, and, turning, swung down the platform, and out of sight. Blake stood watching him, watching until the high head, the straight shoulders, the lithe, swinging body, were but a memory. Then he turned with a start, as a hand was laid upon his shoulder, and the pleasant, prosaic voice of the young Englishman assailed his ears. "'My dear chap, what in the world are you doing, not daydreaming with the mercury at thirty? "'Foolish, but I was,' Blake answered calmly. "'I was watching that young Russian stalk away into the unknown, and I was wondering, "'What?' He smiled a little cynically. "'I was wondering, Billy, what type of individual and what particular process fate will choose to let him break himself upon.' "'The most splendid moment of an adventure is not always the moment of fulfilment, not even the moment of conception, but the moment of first accomplishment, when the adventurer deliberately sets his face toward the new road, knowing that his boats are burned. Nothing could have been less inspiring than the dreary Gardinour, nothing less inviting than the glimpse of Paris to be caught through its open doorways. But had the whole world laughed him a welcome, the young Russian's step could not have been more elastic, his courage higher, his heart more ready to pulse to the quick march of his thoughts, as he strode down the grey platform and out into the open. In the open he paused to study his surroundings. As yet the full tale of passengers had not emerged, and only an occasional wayfarer, devoid of baggage as himself, had fared forth into the gloom. Outside the artificial light of the station ceased to do battle with nature, and only an occasional street lamp gave challenge to the gloomy dawn. The damp mist that all night had enshrouded Paris still clung about the streets like ragged grave-clothes, and at the edge of the pavement half a dozen fiacres were ranged in a melancholy line, the wretched horses dozing as they stood, the drivers huddled into their fur capes and numbed by the clinging cold. Everywhere was darkness and chill and the listless misery of a winter dawn, when vitality is at its lowest ebb and the passions of man are sunk in lethargy. Only a creature infinitely young could have held firm in face of such dejection, only eyes as alert and wakeful as those of this wayfaring boy could possibly have looked undaunted at the shabby streets with their flaunting travesty of joy, exhibited in the dripping awnings of the deserted café that offered bière, billard, and yet again bière, to an impassive world. But the eyes were wakeful, the soul of the adventurer was infinitely young. He looked at it all with a certain steadfastness that seemed to say, "'Yes, I see you. You are hideous, slatternly, unfriendly, but through all the disguise I recognise you. Through the mask I trace the features, subtle, alluring, fascinating. You are Paris. Paris!' The idea quickened action, as a draught of wine might quicken thought. His hand involuntarily tightened upon his valise. His body braced itself afresh, and as if resigning himself finally to chance, that deity loved of all true adventurers, he stepped from the pavement into the greasy roadway. Seeing him move, a loafer, crouching in the shadow of the station, slunk reluctantly into the open and offered to procure him a fiacre. But the boy's shake of the head was determined, and, crossing the road, he turned to the left, 
gazing up with eager interest at the many hotels that rub shoulders in that uninteresting region. One after the other he reviewed and rejected them, moving onward with the excitement that is born of absolute uncertainty. Onward he went, without pause, until the pavement was intersected by a side street, and peering up through the misty light he read the legend, Rue de Dunkerque. Rue de Dunkerque? It conveyed nothing to his mind. But was he not seeking the unknown? Again his head went up, again his shoulders stiffened, and smiling to himself at some secret thought, he swung round to the corner and plunged into the unexplored. Halfway down the route to Dunkerque stands the Hotel Rayot. It is a tall and narrow house, somewhat dirty and entirely undistinguished. There is nothing to recommend it, save perhaps an air of privacy, a certain insignificance that wedges it between the surrounding buildings in a manner tempting to one anxious to avoid his fellows. This quality it was that caught the boy's attention. He paused and studied the Hotel Rayot, with an attention that he had denied to the large and common hostelries that fronted the station. He looked at it long and meditatively. Then, very slowly and thoughtfully, he walked to the end of the street. At the end of the street he turned, his mind made up, and, hurrying back, went straight into the hall of the hotel, as though thirsting to pledge himself irrevocably to his decision. It is impossible for the sensible individual to see romance in this entry into a third-rate Parisian hotel, to see daring or to see danger. But the boy's heart was beating fast as the glass door swung behind him, and his tongue was dry as he stepped into the little office on the right of the poor hall. Here, in the office, the story of the streets was repeated. A dingy gas-jet shed a faint light, as though reluctantly awake. Behind a small partition, half-counter, half-desk, a wan and sleepy-looking man was cowering over a stove. As the boy entered, he looked up uncertainly. Then he rose and smiled. The Parisian is exhausted indeed when he fails to conjure up a smile. "'Good day, monsieur.' The words were a travesty in view of the miserable dawn, but the boy took heart. There was greeting in the tone. He moistened his lips, which felt dry as his tongue in his momentary nervousness. Then he stepped closer to the counter. Oh, "'Good day, monsieur. I'd acquire a bedroom.' "'A bedroom, but certainly, monsieur.' The shrewd, though tired eyes of the man passed over his visitor's clothes and the valise in his hand. "'We can give you a most excellent room at—' uh, He raised his eyebrows in tactful hesitation. "'At uh, five francs?' The boy's eyes opened in genuine instant surprise. "'For so little?' he exclaimed. Then, covered with confusion, he reddened furiously and stammered, uh, for, "'For so much, I mean.' The man in the office was all smooth politeness, anxious to cover a foreigner's slip of speech. "'But certainly no. If five francs was more than Monsieur cared to pay, then for three francs there is a most charming and most agreeable room on the fifth floor. True, it did not look upon the street, but then perhaps Monsieur preferred quiet. If Monsieur would give himself the trouble of mounting—' Monsieur, still confused by his own mistake, and nervously anxious to insist upon his position— repeated again that five francs was out of the question, and that, without giving himself the trouble of mounting, he would then and there decide upon the agreeable and quiet room at three francs. But certainly it was understood. The guardian of the office, now fully awake and aroused to interest in this princely transaction, disappeared from behind the counter into the back regions of the hotel, and could be heard calling, "'Jean! Jean!' 
in a high, insistent tone. After some moments of silence he returned, followed by a large and amiable individual in a dirty blue blouse, who had apparently but lately arisen from sleep. "'Now if monsieur would entrust his baggage to the valet!' The guardian of the office took a key from a nail in the wall. Jean stepped forward, pleased and self-conscious, and took the valise from the boy's hand. Then all three smiled and bowed. It was one of those foolish little comedies, utterly unnecessary, curiously pleasant, that occur twenty times a day in Parisian life. Involuntarily the adventurer's heart warmed to the padded clerk and to, to the dirty hotel porter. He had arrived here without luggage, shabby, unrecommended, yet no princely compatriot of his own could have been made more sensible of welcome. He stepped out of the office and followed his guide, conscious that, if only for an instant, Paris had lifted her mask and smiled, the radiant, anticipated smile. There was no such unnecessary luxury as a lift in the Hotel Royaux. At the back of the hall the spiral staircase begins its steep ascent, mounting to unimagined heights. Jean, breathing audibly, led the way, pausing at every landing, to assure Monsieur that the extent was nothing, a mere nothing, and that, before another thought could pass through Monsieur's mind, the fifth floor would be reached. The boy followed, climbing and ever climbing, until the meagre handrail appeared to lengthen into dreamlike coils, and the threadbare, drab-hued carpet with its vivid red border to assume the proportions of some confusing scroll. But at length the end was reached, and Jean, beaming and triumphant, announced their goal. "'This way, if monsieur would have the goodness to take two steps in this direction?' He dived into a long, dark corridor, illuminated by a single flickering gas-jet, twin brother to that which lighted the office below. And, still eager, still breathing loudly, he ushered the guest toward what in his humble soul he believed to be the luxurious, the impressive bedroom supplied by the Hotel Royaux at three francs a night. The boy looked about him as he passed down the dim corridor. Apparently he and Jean alone were awake in this gloomy maze of closed doors and sleeping passages. One sign of humanity, and one alone, came to his senses with the suggestion of sordid drama. On the floor, at the closed door of one of the rooms, stood a battered black tray, on which reposed an empty champagne bottle and two soiled glasses. Life his quick imagination conjured a picture, conjured and shrank from it. He turned away with a sense of sharp disgust, and almost ran down the corridor to where Jean was fitting a key into the door of his prospective bedroom. "'The room, monsieur!' Jean's voice was full of pride. He had lived for ten years in the Hotel Royaux, working as six men and six women together would not have worked in the fashionable quarter, and he had never been shaken in his belief that Paris held no more inviting hostelry. The boy obediently stepped forward into the tiny apartment, in which a big wooden bedstead loomed out of all proportion. His movements were hasty, as though he desired to escape from some impression. His voice, when he spoke, was vague. "'Very nice, very nice,' he said. "'And, and what is the view?' "'The view! Oh, but monsieur will like the view!' Jean stepped to the window drew back the heavy creton curtains, and threw open the long window, emitting a breath of chilling cold. "'The courtyard! See, si, monsieur, the courtyard!' The boy came forward into the biting air, and gazed down into the well-like depths of gloom, 
at the bottom of which could be discerned a small flagged court, ornamented by a couple of dwarfed and frost-bitten trees in painted tubs. Jean, watchful of the visitor's face, broke forth anew with inexhaustible tact. "'It was a fine view, monsieur, would admit that, but naturally it was not the street. Now number 107 across the corridor at five francs.' Monsieur was aroused. "'No, no, certainly not. The view was of no consequence. The bed looked all right.' "'The bed?' Here Jean spoke with deep feeling. "'There was no better bed in Paris. Had he not himself put a clean sheet on it that day?' He turned from the window, and with the hand of an expert displayed the beauties of the sparse blankets, the cotton sheets, and the mountainous double mattress. "'But Monsieur was anxious to retire. Doubtless Monsieur would sleep until déjeuner. A most excellent déjeuner was served in the salle à manger on the second floor.' The words flowed forth in a stream. Agreeable, monotonous, reminiscent of the faraway province that had long ago bred this good creature. Suddenly the exhaustion of the long journey, the sleep so long denied, rose about the traveller like a misty vapour. He longed for solitude, he pined for rest. "'I am satisfied with everything,' he said abruptly. "'Leave me. I have not been in bed for two nights.' A flood of sympathy overspread Jean's face. He threw up his hands. "'Poor boy! Poor boy! What a terrible thing!' With a touch as light as a woman's, his work-worn fingers smoothed the pillow invitingly, and, tiptoeing to the door, he disappeared in tactful and silent comprehension of the situation. Vaguely, the boy was conscious of his departure. A great lassitude was falling upon him, making him value the isolation of his three-franc room with a deep gratitude turning his gaze towards the unpromising bed with an indescribable longing. Mechanically, as the door closed, he threw off his heavy overcoat, kicked off his high boots, discarded his coat and trousers, and without waiting to search in his bag for another garment, stepped into bed and curled himself up in the flannel shirt he had worn all day. The bed was uncomfortable, with that extraordinary discomfort of the old-fashioned French bed that feels as though it were padded with cotton wool of indescribable heaviness. The sheets were coarse, the multitudinous clothes were weighty without being warm, but no prince on his bed of roses ever rested with more luxury of repose than did this young adventurer, as, drawing the blankets to his chin, he stretched his limbs with the slow, delicious enjoyment born of long travel. Jean had drawn the Craton curtains, but through their chinks streaks of bluish, shadowy light presaged the coming day. From his lair the boy looked out at these ghostly fingers of the morning. Then his eyes travelled round the dark room until at last they rested upon his clothes, lying, as he had thrown them, on the floor. He looked at them, the boots, the coat and trousers, the heavy overcoat, and suddenly some imperative thought banished sleep from his eyes. He sat up in bed, he shivered at the cold air, nipped his shoulder. Then, unhesitatingly, he slipped from between the sheets and slid out upon the floor. The room was small. The clothes lay within an arm's length. He shivered again, stooped, and picked up the overcoat, dived his hand into the deep pocket, and drew forth the packet that he had guarded so tenaciously in the train. For a moment he stood looking at it in the blue light of the dawn. A thick brown packet, seven or eight inches long, tied with string and sealed. Once or twice he looked at it, seemingly lost in reflection. 
Once or twice he turned it about in his hand, as if to make certain it was intact. Then, with a deep sigh indicative of satisfaction, he stepped back into bed, slipped the packet under his pillow, and with his fingers faithfully enlaced in the string, fell asleep. End of chapter 2